Welcome to episode 37 of Frank Reactions, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name's Tema Frank. I got good news and bad news for you today. The good news is it's a little bit shorter than the last few have been. You'll be able to hear it all start to finish within half an hour. The not-so-good news is the sound quality. I was having some technical issues, so it's not the best sound quality, but I really think it's worth sticking through. Today's guest is Roger Pugsley, who is responsible for customer experience at Oxford Properties, which is a huge property development and management firm. Roger took over there about a year and a half ago, but says that a lot of the credit for creating a culture that made it possible for him to succeed in customer experience was driven by a senior vice president who had taken a trip on an airline a few years ago and was inspired to do something to make sure that his company could deliver great customer experiences consistently. They've done some very clever things that I hadn't heard of elsewhere, and so I'd really recommend that you have a listen, and I'd love to get your feedback. Chat with you briefly at the end. I've been with Oxford just over a year and a half, and I've been within the CX space officially for about seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, I was in uh, IT for 10 years and automotive for 25. I've been a, a customer experience practitioner without the title for most of my career. I've always been a very customer-centered individual. And how long have you been at Oxford Properties? Uh, just over a year and a half. Oxford has, has had a CX program in place for about three years. They brought one of their um, general managers in to... Uh, to kickstart the program, and they built up a team of people within the organization at quite senior level mm-hmm. to um, leverage their voice of the employee to come up with some really cool ideas for how to improve the customer experience. And despite the fact that they didn't have detailed knowledge of what a, a, a CX program looks like, they did a really good job of pulling together some, some ideas and, and implementing some concepts that all of us know and love and uh, and as follows, you know, they were smart enough to come up with a vision. Uh, they were smart enough to come up with a promise that they call the Oxford Commitment on our website. Uh, we're happy to share that with our customers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also publish that and, and display that in some of our building lobbies. And what is the Oxford uh, Commitment? It's a series of five statements. Those statements are, we work with purpose. Mm-hmm. And that means that we are dedicated to raising the bar and, and delivering against the pension promise. We're owned by a pension fund called OMERS. Mm-hmm. We are the real estate investment entity of OMERS. And so we really are focused on driving business results and making sure that those pensioners have a pension and uh, you know a, a great lifestyle when they, when they retire. So that's right. part of our promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take great pride in leading the industry is another one of the five statements. Uh, we earn your respect in every interaction every day is another one. Okay. We consistently deliver a world-class experience, and we empower our teams to deliver effective solutions fast. That's an interesting point, that last one. Yeah, and uh, that's where a lot of our effort goes. Right. Let's back up a step and understand the complexity of our business. We exist in five different verticals. Okay. We own property in office towers, and we have some very high-profile office towers across the country and now internationally. We have uh, space in the uh, retail um, vertical, so we own shopping malls. We own residential apartment complexes, industrial complexes, and hotels. Okay. And you recognize some of the hotels coming up from West. We own um, 
Chateau-Lake Louise mm. and the Fence Springs. Lovely hotels those yeah. are. <laughs> they certainly are. So we have, we have some iconic properties. So the complexity is, is that these are very different mar- uh, markets, very different uh, customer needs. And so it's hard to set a central policy to fit all of those different verticals. Yes. And so a lot of effort and focus has gone into that last statement around enabling and empowering our teams to deliver against that Oxford commitment. Right. Before we get into that a little bit more, I do have a question. What inspired Oxford to even look at this whole issue of customer experience in the first place? That's a great question. Um, Oxford has not always been customer-centric, but I would suggest to you that they started making a move towards customer centricity about seven or eight years ago. Okay. Driven by our senior vice president, uh, Andrew, who is an amazing leader. And I think intuitively he understands that, you know, if we make customers happy, they'll stick around and they'll, they'll keep coming back and we'll establish some loyalty. So I think he intuitively understood that. Right. Um, but about three years ago, he took a, he took a, a trip and uh, had two vastly different experiences <laughs> uh, going and coming back with the same airline. And he, he understood through that experience that it really comes down to those employees. Absolutely. And all of those employees on both of those flights had the same rules, regulations, and policies and procedures. Mm-hmm. But it's those teams and the dynamics of it and the individuals in those teams that are applying those policies, procedures, and services very differently. Right. He had that aha moment and came back and, and uh, formed that team and said, you know, we need to make sure that we can do this consistently. Mm-hmm. So first of all, find who we are and define what our... Our, our brand promises. I don't know if he calls it a brand promise, but that's what I call it, the Oxford commitment. I've made right. that connection. Okay, that decision was made. So then you worked on coming up with these five principles, and then what? He did a roadshow. He went across the country and presented to the organization, the Oxford commitment. Mm-hmm. And just so you know, we also it's also been nicknamed the Q. I have in my hand a copy of the Oxford Commune in the form of a paper cube or a cardboard cube. Okay. It sits on my desk. Every employee has one on their desk. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And the goal of that and is to keep it top of mind? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it comes as uh, as part of your orientation package, your welcome package to the company. And it's a, uh, it's a spring-loaded cube. So it comes flat in a sleeve, and you pull this thing out of the sleeve, and it pops <laughs> into a cube. Okay. That's yeah, pretty cool. So he, he went across the country and, and shared the story of his flights. He stressed the importance of customer centricity. He stressed the importance of making a promise and, and uh, empowering everybody in the organization to be able to deliver against that. Right. Along with a commitment that he would put in place enablement tools, recognition tools, empowerment tools, training, and so on and so forth. Be able to elevate everybody's game. Right. So they um, are positive, which you seem to latch on to very nicely and, and uh, with good reason. It's, I, I love it. It's a, it's a simply amazing program. Um, part of our recognition program. Okay, so let's talk about O-Positive. Tell me what it is. It's uh, picture Pinterest Facebook functionality. So you've got a series of squares that all mesh together uh, with a picture, a title, and a, a very brief description. It also has a, a picture of the author. Okay. And it will is an indicator of how many likes and how many comments have been made against that. So I, that's why I call it Pinterest with um, <laughs> Facebook uh, functionality, allowing people to like, share, and comment on those stories. So when you click on one of those boxes, the story will open up 
additional detail. You can attach things to them. So, for example, if I've got a story about a, a customer event, yeah. um, I'll share the picture, I'll share a description of the event, but I can attach to that maybe some additional information around how much it cost and how many people nice. attended and, and so on and so forth. So you can get complete details around that. Now, what inspires people to take their time to actually create a posting like that? I think there's a deep understanding within the organization that helps everybody understand the value of, of recognizing people. And, and I think themselves, you know, there's every employee within an organization feels the value of, of recognition when they themselves get recognized. So yes. they, I think they instinctively accept the fact that when they see great service or they hear about a great customer story or, or an event that's focused on improving customer satisfaction and loyalty, um, they are inclined to want to share that. And right. Positive has been a very engaging environment where we'll be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. People like going into a positive and checking out the latest stories. Right now, we're, we're at a run rate of about 50 stories a month. And wow. in an organization of about 1,650 people, I think that's really good going. That is. Now, nobody uh, has to vet those or approve those. It's totally up to the employees to post what they want. Great question. Um, there was a lot of discussion around that, <laughs> and uh, when the first when when O Positive was first uh, developed, and they thought, you know, should we vet these? Should there be a delay of an hour? And, and, and <laughs> but the answer was no. And we haven't had to uh, ask anybody to delete a story yet. It has been O Positive. It's <laughs> nothing but good stories in there. Nobody's been nobody's gone into their gripe. Yeah. And, and we're we're simply not worried about this. Mm-hmm. But just to give you an understanding of our culture and how how dedicated we are to customer service and, and uh, providing employees with the tools that they need, we heard through the grapevine that employees or were concerned that they weren't empowered enough mm-hmm. to take care of their customers. They wanted to. There was a desire to do it. I think that's very common. They had the authority or the empowerment in order to take care of the customer fully. And we have now given every employee, not just Oxford employees, but also contract staff who mm-hmm. work on our properties. Those who cover cleaning staff primarily as well as uh, security. Okay. Everybody is empowered, including the contract staff, to spend up to $500 to take care of a customer issue. Wow. That's good. And, and no questions asked. And you how? Will, you make a decision up to $500, you will get supported, you will get thanked by your boss for taking care of a customer, even if the boss disagrees with the decision made. So what kind of training did you have to do for people on how to use that appropriately? Well, that goes back to the dialogue series, and that has been a series of conversations, two-way dialogues that take place at each of the sites. Okay. You know, another part of the challenge is not only do we have five asset classes, but we have, let's say, 100 sites, each with its own little dynamic and each with its own little management team and team that delivers customer service at each of those individual sites. Mm Mm-hmm. That, again, a part of our challenge, and um, we decided that the dialogue series would be held, and uh, we essentially de- we developed that, but we, we leveraged a team of various individuals from the sites to help us vet and uh, design the content of those dialogue series. They are professionally facilitated, mm-hmm. um, or sorry, should I say co-facilitated okay. with the general manager from the site as well as our professional facilitator. Okay. Every dialogue series has a maximum of 20 people. So if you have a team at your site with more than 20 people, you'll have multiple sessions of dialogue series. Right. Those conversations, the first one was around defining service excellence. So we sat with these teams, 
and right down to not, uh, not only our staff, but again, we, we included our contract staff in those conversations. And that is a really interesting and, point because I think a lot of companies do forget about things like, you know, the contract cleaners who have a huge impact on how people would perceive your buildings. Big time. So I couldn't agree more. So I would guesstimate that they own 75% of the interactions with our customers. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have the opportunity just to say, hello, well, well, somebody's walking past them. Mm-hmm. You know, good morning. Yeah. And, and so they, they absolutely impact our reputation, and they should be included um, in our conversations so that they understand what we're trying to accomplish, why we're trying to accomplish it, and how do they deliver against our promises. The second conversation, and so during that first conversation, that's when we started hearing the comments around, um, I want to do this, but I don't know that I... I, um, you trust me and that I'm empowered to do these things. So guess what the second subject was? Trust and empowerment. And that's when we defined what all of it would look like. So can you give me some examples? We are not dictating any of this. Our customer service excellence journey is being defined at, or what I call co-designed mm-hmm. with our entire staff nice. and contractors. How do you get them to the point, though, where they feel comfortable enough to actually exercise some of that potential? Well, you know, there's an, there's an adoption curve involved. Okay. And uh, you've got your your leaders who will just, they just hear that they've got $500 and they go running and, and uh, you know, they're not abusing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is a risk involved for, uh, for abuse. We haven't come across any yet. We've been at this for a year. Hmm. Others are waiting for somebody to pave the path and, and watch what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they saw somebody successfully did that and there was no repercussions involved, they, they go ahead and do it. Sure. And then there's the, uh, you know, the laggards. And uh, they take a little more coaching and coaxing, for lack of a better word. Right. The, the leadership teams at the site level, in other words, the general managers and the property managers, have to keep stressing the fact that they're supportive of this. Yeah. We promise we've got your back. Go <laughs> ahead. Give it a try. And that is a huge point because I think so often something will get proclaimed at the senior levels but then not get support sort of from mid-management. Have Did you find there was a barrier there to win support at the middle levels? Yes. Um, we've got traditional general managers in place who have been at for a long time and have a very, you know, very tightly controlled management or, or autonomy. Yeah. And they... They want to make every decision in the building. Mm-hmm. I think there's been enough discussion at this point in time and, and enough proof that the general managers who have delegated, who have authorized, who have released or relinquished, relinquished control are better off gaining ground in terms of bottom line results. Oh, that is good their, to be able to show their that. engagement scores are higher. We do measure employee engagement. Yep. Their employee engagement scores are higher, and we've been able to do some correlation analysis between our customer metrics, like NPS, mm-hmm. our engagement scores, yeah. and our results. It's and pretty hard to dispute anything that's going on here, because it is absolutely consistent. So, Roger, you've worked in several places, and, and your findings are certainly what a lot of other research would suggest, that improving customer experience and giving employees, particularly frontline employees, some flexibility and freedom will lead to better results. Why do you think so many companies are so reluctant to move in that direction, to let go of the reins? It's a great question. And I think part of it is human nature of resistance to change. Yeah. And because for some people, this is a change. 
it's really hard for them to let go of what's been a successful formula. I'm not suggesting for a second that these people are not successful. They have been successful their entire careers. They are still successful. But we're beginning to prove that they're slightly less successful than those that are adopting the change. Right. That's really interesting. I was just meeting with someone for coffee yesterday who works for a mid-sized manufacturing company, and she's so frustrated there because her superiors, their attitude is, well, we're successful. Why do we need to change? We don't need any of this stuff. And yeah. it's... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's awfully hard unless you can do what you did, which is you've got two different groups that you can compare. It's hard to make to convince somebody to risk messing with success. Yes, agreed. But there's so many examples of organizations that have sat still and been killed by a competitor that has been disrupted. Absolutely. And there's lots of Forrester research, for example, and I think I just saw um, their latest research uh, demonstrating that Fortune 500 companies who are have really strong uh, customer metrics are outperforming those that have Yep. relatively weak yep. customer metrics. Yeah. There's there's tons of evidence out there and that and that, you know, for those people that are struggling with getting the leadership on board, mm-hmm. you just gotta keep pounding away with all this empirical data and all of this research that you know continually points the way to customer centricity. And I'm not suggesting it's easy. I mean you and I both know we are involved <laughs> in a lot of different customer experience circles and we continually hear the questions, we continually hear the frustrations of those that are struggling to get the leadership teams on board. And what about internally? What have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced in transforming the culture in this way? I haven't had a lot of frustration. Mind you, I'm, you know, I'm really in the game. So okay. as I said, uh, Andrew has, is an incredible leader, um, absolutely supports what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, we are a customer-centric culture to begin with. Yeah. Their adoption of NPS, which they'd never heard of a year and a half ago, was almost instantaneous. Hmm. Um, adoption of concepts like a, a customer champion program so that I can have cheerleaders at each of the sites is, was was very quick. The expansion of a, a customer insight program, which was very limited in the past, was encouraged. So what kinds of things do you do now? How was that expanded? We've, uh, we've now got... Uh, Overall, high-level customer satisfaction and loyalty surveys for all of the different asset classes. Okay. We're uh, we're introducing focus groups, and we're just about to kickstart a journey mapping exercise in our office space. Uh, work through that, and then we'll expand that into some of the other areas. As far as you know, are your competitors doing this in your industry? Um, certainly, uh, there's some competitors who get customer service and are and have got uh, varying levels of engagement around customer service. Yeah. Um, our survey results suggest that we are we have a leadership position in this area and we have a competitive advantage. Okay. But we alluded to it earlier is that we can't stop. Um, if we do stop, we will get overtaken. Yeah. And we'll lose our competitive advantage. So we'll continue to innovate. And it, you know the amazing thing is is that you know we're we're a little bit surprised that we need to organize and facilitate a discussion between managers and their teams. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that that would be happening anyway, but uh-huh. the reality is is that you know we've got very busy teams, we've got lots going on, yeah. and defining those conversations and structuring those conversations has been a really great thing for us. The platform that you've used for this O-Positive, is that something you developed internally, or is there some kind of off-the-shelf software that other companies could use to do something similar? 
I wish I could share that with you, other people, and but okay. it's done internally. Uh, you we do. developed internally. Okay. And in fact, uh, if O positive has been so popular that some of our other areas like sustainability and security and safety and operational excellence are going to create a very similar site that they call Managed with Pride, mm-hmm. and they will share stories about operational experts in those other areas via a very similar platform. And it's a great idea. It's worked extremely well. It's been extremely engaging. Old Positive has spawned a couple of other things. I mine Old Positive daily for those great ideas that should be shared with other sites. So it's, it's one thing to hear a story about how a security guard saved the life of a customer who collapsed in a mall or, or an office tower. I mean, those are the kind of stories we get we share. Yeah. But there's other types of stories about initiatives that make sense to leverage across our platform. And I will mine those stories, reach out to the author, get additional details. And within our intranet, I have developed a site called Site Initiatives We Love. <laughs> and we have now over 100 ideas that are being shared across our platforms um, based on one-off initiatives at an individual building. Mm. So why would this have been separate from your intranet? It's actually buried within our intranet. Okay. But with now 1,500 stories in O-positive, <laughs> remember, they are short snippets in stories typically. Yeah. And without all the detail that, and, and photographs that I could share in Site Initiatives Love. Right. Site Initiatives Love is is a folder system that's a, um, I, I can share lots of additional detail around the cost of the program, who some of the vendors were, right. um, some photographs, some examples of what it's all about. Each of those folders cover different areas of customer experience. Mm-hmm. So there's a folder around customer amenities. There's a folder around building customer community. There's a folder around employee recognition, a folder around employee engagement. Hmm. So people can quit, you know, if they want to work on employee engagement, they just go to that folder and there's probably a dozen or more ideas from different sites on how to engage employees. That's wonderful. I really like that. Yeah. So the other thing that we pull out of O Positive is we use that as our source for identifying winners of our, of our annual customer experience awards. Yesterday, I went for coffee with a marketer who's working for a successful manufacturing firm and is feeling very frustrated because although they figured they ought to have a marketing person, they don't really at their core believe they need it. The company's doing well and really, why mess with success? It's one thing that really struck me about today's interview was that Roger made the point that sometimes resistance to customer experience initiatives comes for that very reason, that they had managers who had been successful. And as he put it, it's hard for them to let go of what has been a successful formula. However, over time, they've now at least been able to develop the data to prove to them that it's not as successful as one grounded in customer experience. Another thing that really struck me in today's interview is the fact that they thought to include contract workers in their customer experience programs and training. How often is it that you offer a service or your business offers a a product or service where a lot of the customer's experience is dependent not just on what you deliver, but on what contractors or suppliers deliver as well? So if you want them to be living up to your customer experience standards, it's a darn good idea if you involve them in the process. That's all for today. I, as always, would really love to get your feedback and comments and reviews. You can leave reviews on iTunes or Stitcher, which would make me incredibly happy and would help other people discover the show. 
And you can always reach me by email, Tema, T-E, Amazon Marketing A, at frankreactions.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at Tema Frank. You can call toll-free 1-866-544-9262. And you can find me on LinkedIn or elsewhere. Hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Bye. Bye.